0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Will you please be seated. I want to ask Chris Wright to join me here. Uh, it is a real pleasure to welcome Chris here to all, Soul, uh, to all souls. That's a funny thing. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. So this is Holy Trinity, in case you were wondering. <laughs> I've been here for almost 13 years, but Chris and I first met at All Souls uh, in London, where I was working as John Stott's study assistant. And Chris uh, uh, was involved in the church in many ways, a regular preacher. Um, during During the late 90s, as John Stott was thinking about handing over responsibility for the many ministries he had started around the world, the name that kept coming back to the top of the list time and again was Chris's name. And when John handed over the reins of those many ministries, Chris did indeed Take charge, and I actually—I it was uh, occurred to me this morning that um, I was the study assistant during this time as John was thinking about these things, and I was got to be the, have the privilege of being a part of some of these conversations. And I'll say, Chris, I, I've never told you this, but the two things that kept coming up as John was thinking about his successor and why Chris, why Chris's name kept coming up, were that he was a man of deep humility. And he was a, a man of incredible devotion to the Scriptures. Those were the two things that mattered most to Uncle John. And that and was the reason where, why Chris was invited to take over those ministries. Chris is taught... Uh, the Bible all over the world. He runs an international group of ministries. He's an Old Testament scholar, and he'll be teaching this week at the study center at UNC on the book of Exodus. Chris, it's a delight to have you with us. Let me pray for you before you preach. Lord God, would you speak to us from your word that you might be honored, that we might be formed and shaped as your disciples for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Good,
1: and good morning everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here and uh, to be introduced in a style which is just as embarrassing as it was when John Stott used to introduce me uh, many years ago, but it has been wonderful to know uh, John over all these years. Uh, And uh, through that connection, of course, with our dear brother John Stott, uh, who died in 2011, and uh, would, I'm sure, be delighted to know that his former study assistant, John, John Yates, uh, has invited me here to be with you at Holy Trinity this Sunday uh, and in a sense to honor his memory by looking together at the scriptures and also, of course, by sharing a little bit about Langham Partnership. I, I don't really want to say anything about it because there's, I understand there are some brochures out there at the back of the church, John, I think. Uh, yeah. So you can pick up a brochure about the, the Langham Partnership and, of course, the name simply comes from the street in London where John Stott's church was, still is, All Souls Church Langham Place. That's what he named the ministries after, and that's the name that has stuck. And there is a Langham partnership here in the US which uh, provides a, a great amount of our support financially. And I know that this church, as a church, supports Langham, and some of you as individuals do as well. So I bring you thanks for that, as I bring you greetings. Greetings from my own home church, All Souls, where my wife and I have now lived and worked for these last 20-something years, uh, and very much part of the fellowship there. So it's a joy to be here this morning with you. Now, we've already prayed, so it'd be wonderful if you would be willing to turn back to that passage that was read to us just a few moments ago from 1 Kings chapter 18. I think it's on page 300 of the church Bible, if you want to pick that up. Uh, But it's this story of Elijah, and again John has told me that you've been thinking through this wonderful narrative of the prophet Elijah from 1 Kings over these Sundays and will presumably carry on doing so over the next few weeks as well. But this story, this one from 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 20 to 40, of course, is a very famous story. I'm quite sure it's well known, Elijah on Mount Carmel, and you've been leading up to it uh, in these Sundays. In some ways, uh, it's almost like a test of Elijah's own name. The name Elijah in Hebrew, Eliyahu, means my God, Eli, is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh, who's yours, is effectively what his name meant. And here is going to be the big test of the meaning of his name, that the Lord God, Yahweh God, And again, I'm sure you know that when our English Bibles use that word, the Lord, with capital letters, it is uh, referring to the personal name of the God of Israel, Yahweh, or in the older Bibles, Jehovah. I'd like us to look at this story through three moments or three movements that come, and the first is to look at this question. It's a question that poses a dichotomy almost an impossibility, actually, but the dichotomy of something that you, you can't have both, really. It's that question that he asked, you see it there in verse 21. Elijah went before the people and he said, how long will you limp, is the word that I heard in the verse. And I think, is that the ESV you're using here? In my NIV it says, waver between these two viewpoints. It's, it's a, a powerful word, actually. It, it means to limp or to, to hobble to totter both ways, one way and then the other. It's it's a very vivid word going backwards and forwards between two things on either side of you. Because the point is that it's, it's, it's not that the Israelites had simply abandoned the worship of Yahweh their God and chosen Baal instead, but that somehow or other they were staggering in between the two, unable to make up their mind, and Elijah is somewhat mocking that. He says, that's ridiculous, it's so lopsided, you're just tottering around from one to the other. It's a bit like two drunken Irish men, and I'm allowed to tell this joke because I'm Irish, okay, Uh, so I'm I'm, I'm allowed to tell Irish jokes, but it's like two drunken Irish men walking up a railway track in the middle of the railway track and one says to the other, these stairs are awful far apart. And the other one says, it's not the stairs, it's these wee low balusters on either side. (laughs) Staggering like that. That's the picture that Elijah portrays here. And what was going on? Why was there this limping syncretism, which is what it is, trying to hold together two impossible things? You see, Yahweh was the God they still wanted to keep, in one way, because he's the God of our history. Oh God, our help in ages past. We still want that God. He's a great God for battles, if you have one, because if God, Yahweh, is on your side, you're likely to win. Yahweh's a good God to have every Sabbath, because you get a day off, uh, and you also get three weeks holiday a year, three festivals to Yahweh, so holidays are biblical, I hope you know that. So Yahweh, yeah, we, we don't want to abandoned him altogether, we still somehow, he's God. God, yeah, we still believe in God, we trust this God, Yahweh. But Baal, well, you see, Baal is the God of the land. He's the God of the people who lived here before, and they seem to have got everything pretty well together. He's the God of commerce. He's the God of business deals, land deals were done in Baal's name. He was certainly the God of sex, fertility, whether of your animals or of your crops or indeed of your women, your wives. He would make them have what they have. Baal is the god of wealth, the god of flourishing and success. He seems to be the god of everything that really matters in life. And actually, even more than that, he's the god of the government at the moment. Because at this particular point in the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, and I know you've been thinking about where this is in the the northern kingdom of Israel, the government was Ahab and Jezebel, do you remember, who came from Phoenicia. And that's where they worshiped Baal. And so now the government of your country was advocating this God. And so to worship Baal was a politically savvy thing to do as well to show your loyalty to the government, your loyalty to the king and his wife. It was a matter of national pride. This was the God who was making Israel successful in their situation. So there was all sorts of political, social, economic advantage to worshiping Baal. After all, look what happened to Naboth a little bit later in the story. You'll probably come to him soon a worshiper of Yahweh who suffered because of what Jezebel believed of the worship of Baal. So you see, for a whole range of what seemed pretty plausible reasons, these people were trying to keep Yahweh as, yeah, their real God, but actually in everyday life, Monday to Friday, as we might say, it was Baal who was really governing their lives. And I just wonder what that sort of says to us today in the contemporary church and in our culture. When my wife and I lived in India, as we did for a number of years, I was teaching there, I used to teach Old Testament in that seminar and I often thought, Baal is alive and well in India. We have fertility cults, we have multiple gods, we have gods which looked and sounded a bit like Baal of the Old Testament. We had gods there that were gods of, yes, sex, and indeed of, in some cases, child sacrifice. There was also all sorts of economic and social oppression of people like Naboth that went along with that. And I used to think, yeah, Baal is alive and well in this culture. But back in the West, I think Baal is alive and well here too in our Western culture, and indeed within the Christian church sometimes, with our obsessions with, with money, with success, in our culture also with sex and all that goes with that. There's also obsession with political power, with loyalties and advantages. And along with all of those idolatries, of course, goes the increasing fragmentation of society with injustice and poverty and racism and violence and so on. And so we somehow want, as it were, to keep a figurehead God and actually be worshipping the gods of the people and the culture around us which bear the fingerprints of a very different kind of God. And Elijah's question, as it were, points that straight into our faces. He says, how long will you go on doing this? How long will you not see that this is a dichotomy, this is an impossibility of really serving the living God, the God of truth, and integrity and honesty. The God of love and compassion and justice. And yet at the same time serving the idols of a God like Baal. And that's a challenge, that kind of forceful challenge which comes up a number of times in the Bible. Uh, Moses threw it at the children of Israel after their great failure at Mount Sinai when he questions in Exodus 32, who is on the Lord's side? And on that occasion, only one of the tribes joined him. Later, at the other end of that story in Joshua 24, Joshua asked the children of that generation, you need to choose today whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors who lived there or the living God who appeared to you at Sinai. You need to choose today who you're going to serve, he says. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or you remember how Jesus said no one can serve two masters, either God or Mammon, that you cannot serve God and Mammon. You have to choose. So that's the first challenge that comes from our story. I wonder whether it strikes any of us. Is it indeed time for you to answer Elijah's question? It certainly is time for us in the Church of England, if I may be personal for a moment from my own context and situation, where we're faced with this challenge as to whether the church, as a church under its leaders and our bishops, will indeed choose the God who speaks to us through the authoritative word of the scriptures and follow his way, or accommodate our alleged faith in the God of the scriptures to the gods and idolatries of the culture around us and all that seems so plausible and right in the eyes of our world. That choice is now become very stark and is having to be made by some of us and our churches back in England. And I would ask for your prayers. Pray for us, please, because we need your prayers. So that's a question then that posed a dichotomy. And then it leads secondly, of course, into the main story, which is a contest, a competition that exposed a futility, the futility of idolatry and worshiping false gods, that is. And of course, it's a brilliantly told narrative, isn't it, it was so well read to us a few minutes ago. Elijah offers these prophets of Baal all kinds of advantages. I mean, if this were a sport, if this were a a sporting competition, there there is no contest, I mean, it's 450 to one. You know, that's no contest. And he gives them home advantage as well. Mount Carmel was right up there on the borders of Phoenicia. He didn't bring them to some mountain down in the center of the land, closer to Jerusalem, where Yahweh was worshiped, so they were home ground. He also gives them choice of ends, as it were. He said, you know, you, you choose your bull, uh, you can, and he also gives them kickoff, or as well, lets them bat first. You know, you, you, you go first. So he gives them every advantage. And then, as you know, the story has these six hours of chanting around the altar of Baal. My NIV says that they were chanting and dancing. Actually, rightly, your ESV says they were limping. In both cases, the verb in verse 21, how long will you limp, waver between two opinions, is the same in verse 26. They limped around this altar. They were hobbling, tottering, shuffling around this altar between Yahweh and Baal. Even then, as one commentator puts it, that the joyful dance of faith in the living God has given way to the weary shuffle of idolatry, which I think is a very graphic way of putting it. And it comes midday, noon, high noon, and Elijah's, I imagine him sort of reclining there, you know, probably just watching all this with, uh, with contempt in his eyes, with a certain mockery until he can stand it no more, and he calls out, come on, guys, keep it up, keep it up, shout a bit louder. I mean, he is a God after all, isn't he? That's what you believe. Maybe he's asleep. You need to wake him up. Uh, maybe he's gone off on a business trip. Maybe he's... Actually, the word in Hebrew is (laughs) one of the words you don't really use in church. Um, Relieving himself is a rather uh, pleasant way of what he actually says. says, Maybe he's gone for a pee. I mean, literally, that's what he says in in this verse. This, This is mockery. This is sarcastic humor. And was he wrong to speak like that? Well not according to Psalm 2 because Psalm 2 tells us that even God himself laughs at the foolishness of those who think that they can somehow shake their fist at the living God and he won't be even bothered about it. There is actually something laughable, something ridiculous about idolatry. Especially, you see, for those who know better. Because almost certainly these these prophets were not prophets who didn't know any better. These are almost apostates from the worship of Yahweh. They had known the living God and have chosen to lead the people astray into the worship of these false gods. And that's the kind of ridiculous thing to do that that Jeremiah uh, comments on in Jeremiah chapter two where God says this about the people of Israel. He says, has any nation ever changed its gods even though they're not gods, (laughs) no they don't. It's ridiculous, even nations which have gods which don't really exist are at least loyal to the gods they don't have. Whereas my people have exchanged the glory of God. They know the living God, and what have they done? They've swapped him for lifeless idols. So be appalled at this, you heavens. Shudder with horror, says God. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's it's an absurd thing. You're a farmer, and you have the wonderful privilege of having a living spring on your land, uh, which means that you've got no water problems ever. You've got living water on your land to irrigate your crops. But what do you do? You abandon it, you block it up. And you dig out a cistern underground, years of toil to get a great big hole under the ground. And when the rain comes, it all drains away. It was worthless, it was useless anyway. How stupid is that? That's the kind of ridiculous nature of idolatry. And just to remind you, as I said a moment ago, Elijah is not mocking the people because the people are confused. They don't know which way to go. What he's mocking are these false prophets, these false teachers who have led the people astray. Almost certainly, as I said, these 400 prophets of Baal were former prophets of Yahweh who have apostatized, who have abandoned the faith of the living God because there's another bunch who were not here, and that's the 450 prophets of Asherah from Jezebel. Uh, who were almost certainly from the worship of Baal up north, but they're not there on this occasion. These were false apostate teachers that Jesus warned us against in his sayings. Beware of sheep in, or wolves rather, in sheep's clothing. Peter warns us against them. Paul warns us against them. John, they all do. They say this is going to be a problem within the church, that there will be those who should know better who lead people in false ways. And then they cut themselves, they bleed. Idolatry is self-harm, basically. But five times in the passage, the commentator and the narrator says, there was no answer, there was no sound, there was no response, there was no nothing. And above all, there was no fire. You see, false gods fail. It's the only thing you can rely on with a false god is that they let you down. If you worship whatever is not God, then you will be disappointed. You'll end up disillusioned. In fact, you will end up with disaster because false gods fail. Quotes, all our gods have failed. Those are the last words of an editorial in a British newspaper back in the 1980s. It was the Independent. That was the name of the newspaper. After something horrendous that shocked the nation took place, it was the murder of a young toddler uh, called Jamie Bulger. But the point was he was murdered by two children, two 10-year-olds, I think it was at the time. And the nation was so shocked by this that the editorials were asking questions, how can this happen? What sort of a country have we become? And the editor in the, edu- in the Independent said, you know, we've had, uh, we've had a labor government, we've had a conservative government, we've had better education, we've had better medical health, uh, we've tried answers of this sort and that sort, and then at the last one, said, all our gods have failed. It was of course, a, 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 it was a metaphor, it was a figure of speech, but when I read it, I thought, yeah, you, you only mean it as a figure of speech, but actually it is speaking the spiritual truth. That when a society does what Western culture has been doing for the last 300 years, which is that basically abandoning the living God for all practical purposes from any relevance to public life, And in the place of the living God, bringing in the idolatries of the autonomy of our reason about self, of human progress, of uh, scientific wonderful advance, great though they are, of better education, of greater economic growth, the political right, the political left, all of these idolatries, these are the things that we think will somehow save us and help us. And in the end, they all let us down one way or another. We give them messianic expectation and they're not the Messiah. And we end up, of course, ultimately with the idolatry of the self. I will make myself whatever I am. It's the Disney idolatry, telling little girls, you can be whatever you want to be so long as you believe in your self. You make yourself what you choose to be. Even your sexual identity is your choice. And so in the end, our culture collapses with this imploding kind of futility which Romans 1 says is what God gives us up to in the end when God says, well if that's the way you want it, then you can have it and these will be the consequences. So here there's this contest which exposes the futility of false gods. So there's a question then that posed the dichotomy and a contest that exposed the futility of God and finally, there are the actions of of Elijah that express his priority. And that's what comes in verses 30 to 40. Because by about three o'clock in the afternoon, Elijah's had enough. And you imagine that the people have probably had enough and so have the prophets and certainly so have we, the readers. Uh, And so his actions, what what Elijah does here at that point, shows what he thinks really matters in two ways. First, he rebuilds the altar of Yahweh which had been broken down. Now, ironically, so it should have been, because actually there were not supposed to be altars to Yahweh in these high places up in mountains. But hey, if the challenge is who really is God, then in a sense we need, we need an altar for Yahweh right here, right now, so that the name of the Lord can be reasserted over this place, this land, this mountain, which has been usurped for the pagan worship uh, of Baal. or like the temples of Mammon that have so taken over our land. The name of the Lord needs to be here. And not only is it rebuilding the altar of the Lord, but he does it at the time of the evening sacrifice. Probably he specified that. Perhaps he actually said that to the people. That you know what time it is? This is the time of day when in the temple in Jerusalem they will be offering the sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, that act of atonement for daily forgiveness and cleansing, which was never more needed than than right now. So he rebuilt the altar of the Lord, and he says he built it with 12 stones. Did you notice that? Representing the whole people of Israel, all the people named by the name of the Lord. 12, not 10. Because as you know, this is the northern kingdom of Israel where the political reality was the 10 northern tribes which had separated off from Judah and Benjamin back in the days of Rehoboam after the death of Solomon. You know all that. And at this point, that's what they were, a political kingdom of 10 tribes. But Elijah's vision was not that. Elijah's vision of God was of the true nation, the true church, the true people of God not just this tribal reality of the northern kingdom. Elijah was committed to the people of God as God wanted them to be, one people, chosen in Abraham for the blessing of all the nations, not this tragic dividedness of two kingdoms on the ground which Israel had degenerated into, warring tribes. Again, what about us? I wonder, is our vision, the vision of the church as the bride of Christ, as the whole body of Christ in our world and in our country, and not just our tribe, or our tribes, and not them over there, or those tribes, those enemies, those others. So sad when that dividedness creeps into the church, especially into the evangelical community, as it has become such a scandal in the rest rest of the world. So if we want the altar of the Lord, it has to be the altar of, quotes the 12 tribes of Israel, the whole people of God. If we long for the revival of the love and faith of the living God, then there needs to be repentance and reconciliation and a rejection of our tribalism and a return to the concept of God's whole people. So he rebuilds the altar and finally he prays a prayer. It's a short, simple, powerful prayer with only two points. One, that God should be recognized for who he is, and secondly, that the people should be brought back to God in repentance. He prays that Yahweh will be known as God in Israel. That's to say, this is the covenantal God definitive of who he is, not just any God, God in some generic sense that we sometimes use that word God, you know, in God we trust. What what God do you mean? No, this is Yahweh God, the God revealed to Abraham and through Moses at Mount Sinai, the God of the Exodus, the God in the gospel of the transfiguration of Jesus when Elijah was there, this God, the God of Israel, the God who had elected them, chosen and redeemed them and blessed them, This is the God who he wants to be recognized for who he is, revealed in that way. That, of course, leads us to Christ, doesn't it? Because here it is in Christ that this God, it's the God of Israel who walks among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So it's never enough just to say, do you believe Jesus is God? Unless you define which God you mean or who God is. Jesus is this God. There was a survey in the United Kingdom just very recently about religious belief and they asked the question, do you believe in God? And apparently a pretty large percentage of people say, no, they don't. And I wanna say, well, that's that's a meaningless question because if I ask someone, which God do you not believe in, and they tell me the God they don't believe in, I'd probably say, well, in those terms, I'm an atheist too because that's not the God I believe in. Are we believing in this God, the God revealed in scripture at Mount Sinai, at Mount Carmel, the Mount of Ascension and ultimately in the Mount of Calvary in our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be biblically specific about our God as Elijah is here. And finally, his prayer is that God would turn his people back to him. See that's the great longing of Elijah and of God. God says in Ezekiel chapter 33, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would repent and live. God wants his people back to repent. I remember my wife and I counseling a a young lady in our dining room once whose husband was behaving very badly uh, and had effectively left her. Uh, And and she was weeping and she was so angry about it and, and what he was doing. And then she suddenly burst out. She said, but I love him so much, I just want him back. And there was this anger and this love in the same heart at the same time. And I thought, that's what God feels. Anger because of our sin and a love that wants us back. And I wonder is that our prayer for our church and for our society? A recognition of God's identity and a repentance of God's people. And then the fire fell. And it fell from the top down. Did you notice that in the reading? It comes down in the opposite direction to which fire normally goes. Fire comes from below and comes up. But there's no fire lighters in this altar. The fire comes from above, it consumes the sacrifice, then the wood, then the stones, then the earth, and then even the water in the earth. This is God at work. And the people burst out almost crying out Elijah's own name, Yahweh, the Lord, he is God. This national act of repentance and faith, which sadly was true, but rather short-lived, as we find later. And then comes that awful moment of the slaughter of the prophets of Baal. It wasn't wanton vengeance. It was what the law prescribed in Deuteronomy 13. That those who were false prophets and who spoke in the name of the Lord but lead people into apostasy and idolatry, they were to be put to death. And that's what happened to these men. Well, we don't do that today, of course. We just slay people on social media instead. But what this does show is the seriousness of this problem in God's sight. That when false teaching leads people into falsehood and uh, apostasy, then something serious is happening. Well, there's our chapter. I hope it will help us to face up to the impossibility of living in a way which is actually trying to worship the living God while worshiping other gods at the same time. Hope that it will get us to get real about the futility of trying to do that. That false gods will let us down and to sort out our priorities for the recognition of our living God and the repentance of God's people. May God help us. For his name's sake, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that speaks into our hearts and cuts through our pretenses just as Elijah did on that day. So we pray that your Holy Spirit will help us to take it to heart and to respond according to your will and your desire for us. In Jesus' name, amen.